This is Abalone Mountain Press Podcast. I am Amber McCrary, host of Abalone Mountain Press Podcast. Our podcast focuses on Indigenous writers and their writing journeys. In this episode, I will be talking to Ruben Chuk Baak on Growing Up Autumn. Ruben Chuk Baak is an enrolled member of the Tono Autumn Nation from the community of Sells, Arizona. Ruben is an advocate of restoration from personal trauma as well as de victimizing oneself from historical trauma. He is humbly the current curator of education for the Tohono O'odham Nation Culture Center and Museum, and has over 16 years drug, alcohol, and violence free. He honorably continues to help people struggling in addiction, alcoholism, violence, and toxic lifestyles to change their lives. Ruben also writes poetry. His hope is to invoke truth and empowerment to Native America and the generations to come. Trigger warning, this episode has talk of violence, abuse, and drug use. Thank you for joining me here at the Abalone Press podcast office. (laughs) Um, So yeah, just uh, who are you and where were you born? My name is Ruben Chukbak. I'm the, a member of the Tonotham Nation. Um, I was actually born in Sacaton on the Hill River. And, um, but I was, but I grew up in cells. I grew up on my nation. And um, the story behind that was my mom was working in the farms in Arizona City at the time when she was pregnant with me. So it made sense to, you know, anyway. All right, that's interesting. Um, what was it like growing up in your hometown of Cells? Um, it it was it was okay. I, I you know recently I've been doing some work in shame, um, personal trauma, and for the for the longest time I couldn't really remember good things about my childhood. And recently started having some memories that were good. Um, and why I guess um, so when I went from the time I was you know um, able to walk and start talking all I knew was autumn my autumn language we moved to an area in cells called the rentals when it was new and all of a sudden I had all a bunch all these kids around us um, we sort of tried to go play with them none of them spoke autumn they all spoke English mm-hmm. so my sister and I got made fun of, and like it was kind of like a bad thing that we didn't know English. So that was kind of like my intro to, like in my childhood there, and and that kind of perpetuated. Um, I came from an abusive home, and it was a single parent, my mom. So it was uh, my childhood was really, um, I would say, it was bleak. And and then uh, growing up in an environment where my male role models were you know, alcoholics, drug addicts, drug dealers, bootleggers, violent men, men beat their women, unemployed men, um, 
that was my environment. And so when I was about, I think, 10, going on 11, somewhere in between there, I started um, smoking weed every day and like drinking on the weekends. I started selling drugs at that point. Um, and um, and then it and then it kind of manifested. Got got sent away to boarding schools, and and then um, I got kicked out of my mom's house when I was fourteen. And by then, I I think um, I started getting into uh, that lifestyle even more because it was. I think at that point, my world went black and morality went out the window. So it it um, it was easy. I started selling. Um, I think harder drugs at that point, cocaine and things like that. So, it um, I don't know that the childhood it was there, but it was just really like wrapped in in, in growing up in that kind of chaotic environment and then in trauma in my in my own home. But when I look back, um, growing up Catholic, uh, my family, my mom was Catholic, so I grew up in that for the, the first. 10, 11 years, and I remember around 13 years old, my my um, my uncle came and got me. He said, we, we need you. You have to come help us. And it was for a ceremony. It was the first time I ever had any interaction with any traditional ceremony of my, my people. And it was a healing ceremony, so I went. I was part of it. And that night, I remember feeling things, seeing things, and like, just being in this space that I've never been before. I never felt any of this in the church. So I dropped the church and just started walking on a traditional path from then. Even walking in the, into the world, I was going into in terms of the violence and the, the drugs, the, the, all that, that chaos. But it was like the church was gone. It was just more traditional. And then um, essentially at, at some point, um, I, I I opted to go into rehab uh, when I was like 17. And um, there was a guy there, he had he had all these books, um, Black Alex Speaks, Bury My Heart of Wounded Knees, like you need to read these. And I was like, why? You know what I mean? And, and, and I never knew, you know, you're not taught these things under res, at least not where I came from during that time, I wasn't. And so I remember picking that up and and a lot of the shit that, excuse me, a lot of the things that happened to me made sense because of what I was learning. I just remember being angry for like the next 10 years of my life. <laughs> so, the, so I went really... You never watch something like Bully without critiquing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went, I went um, militant and um, yeah, I really was like a few people and yeah. like, and, um, but I, I really dug into the history of my people, um, yeah. finding out that you know we were enslaved to build these churches and mm. from from the Spanish and the Franciscans, Jesuits, and and it was, and then even just finding out because once upon a time my na my last name used to be Rivas, mm. and so it's Spanish last name. I'm not Spanish, and I'm, or or you could say it's Mexican last name, and I'm not from Mexico, so I was like. How did we get these names? And when I found out, like, mm. um, you're usually um, given to it while you're being baptized in the church. As mm. as an autumn child, you would, they would take your they replace your autumn name with with mm. with a Spanish name. Or 
I remember talking to this woman uh, when I changed my name. She's like, you know what? And she's from like um, uh, central Mexico. She was saying that she remembers her great-grandfather telling her the story that when they came, meaning the Spaniards, they pulled everybody outside of their home and they said, okay, you guys are now the Garcias. You take mm -hmm. care of the animals. You guys are the Lopez's. You take care of the church. And so they started detailing them with, with like some kind of detail. And, and this lasted for like a couple of generations. It wasn't mm. just like for that generation, but that was from here on, they're known as Garcia. So they take on that, that last name. Mm -hmm. And if you notice that like all along the border, most indigenous people along the border have Spanish last names. And that's, that's true throughout the world though, wherever the Spanish conquered, um, there's, you know, um, they, they have, there's a lot of Spanish last names in the world that same thing kind of happened. But finding it out for me, um, I was just like, I can't, I don't, I don't want this name anymore because it's not ours for one. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting in fights because people were like, you know, talking crap about my family name. And so, you know, defending my family name. And I'm like, how oppressive is that? You know what I mean? Like, and I remember when we did change it legally, like when, when it was done, like we won't have to mess with it no more. Like all my IDs and everything, it was done. It was this feeling like some kind of detachment of like that name, like, mm. like it, it's almost like I was in this cage for like the last 500 years that my family had been in. Um, and and when, when I changed that name, it, it, it kind of just released me from that. It was like I wasn't attached to that no more. I was like, wow. And I, and I was like, I would love for every indigenous people in North America or in the Americas or in the world to feel, to have that feeling because it's really, it's empowering, I thought. Like, it's just kind of, you take back you as, as, as for me, I'm not them, you know. When did you change your last name into Chuk? Uh, and what does it mean? So obviously from uh, what I told you about my childhood, I went to treatment and I managed to stay um, clean, drugs, alcohol, violence for maybe like four years and I got back into it. And once I got back into it, it started with weed and I think I was doing mushrooms and, and then eventually started getting back into coke. And then I started selling it again. And then at, at that time, like, um, crack really hit Tucson. And I remember, like, a friend of mine or, or associate of mine that was, he was a dealer. He's like, you come slang for me. And, and, um, and I, when I was there getting Coke from him, he was weighing out my Coke. And then the time he weighed it out, like, he must have had, like, 50 people. No, 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 that's exaggeration. No, he had more like 15 people come to his window. Mm -hmm. But in that 15 minutes, I saw him collect, like, over $500. Hmm. It just selling crack, right? And I was like, maybe I do need a ship. <laughs> so I, I got back. I started selling crack with him and then kind of branched out on my own. But eventually caught a case. Started going to jail. Graduated to state prison and then ended up in federal prison mm. so I did that was the last time um well I'm knock on wood real quick my simulated mind tells me to knock on wood real <laughs> quick and uh, um, um so 
when I got done, that was five years and a month in, in uh, federal um, prison. And when I got done, I knew I wanted to change my last name before then. I just didn't know what to. And I remember um, my uncle telling me, my grandfather said that we came from back when these old clans that, that were um, to us, but that we, we came from an eagle bloodline. So I was mm -hmm. thinking of changing it to Bach. Mm -hmm. So I talked with, with, my, with my elders today, and I said, look, I'm going to change my last name, and I need you guys to give me a last name because this is going to be our family name moving forward. And so, so they, they did a, um, a little ceremony with it. They, and they got back with me and they, they told me what it was going to be, Chukbog. And she explained that to me. Um, Chukbog was, uh, was a relative of ours. He was, uh, he was a medicine man um, and a real powerful medicine back in, in the day. So I come from a bloodline of, uh, of light, the uh, lightning people and, um, and agriculture people from my grandma's side, um, no, from my from my grandfather's side, from my grandmother's side, lightning people, and that's what he was. He was one of those um, really strong medicine men, and um, and so anyway, um, Chukbak means uh, black eagle. So the color black is we pronounce it Chuk in autumn, but Chuk is like the idea of black, like. Um, like infinity, it doesn't end. It's just a, uh, it's just the idea of black. Like, um, and that's the best way I could ex explain it in English, I guess. Because mm -hmm. in, in autumn, you just kind of know what that is. Mm -hmm. At least if you know what it is. Because I've I've said that to autumns, and they're like, like you know, mm -hmm. um, some that didn't didn't know, but but there are those that, that understand it. Like, mm -hmm. Okay, and um, you know, we're not when I changed it, it wasn't to. Um, be different or anything else. I just wanted to be awesome mm -hmm. and, and get away from the slave name and you know what I mean, like because that's mm -hmm. what it was for for, for me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but changing it, like I said, it, it really it really changed a lot for me. So it it's like decolonization, you know, where you just kind of hear about it, but it's like you actually like decolonized your last name and like took out the the colonized last name and chose like what you represent for your people and your ancestors that's really cool i we changed it in 2012 mm -hmm. um because i wanted to be off any i wanted to be outside of the legal realm mm. so i wanted to make sure like um i didn't want to do it while i was still like on paper meaning like on probation or oh, parole. Yeah. so i i I, I killed my number, got off paper in 2010. Okay. So we started that process shortly after that, but it took like like almost like two years to actually do it legally, going back and forth to court, and then you have to give them a why. Why do you want to change your last name? Because hmm. I'm not Spanish, I'm not, I'm not Mexican, I'm, I'm autumn. Yeah. Rivas comes from Spain, it's not, it's not from here. And, and the judge is like, oh, okay. Huh. <laughs> like, Interesting. So you granted us that. Yeah. yeah. So like if you wanted to change it, like if you chose a different like last name in Autumn, was there a possibility of them like saying no and like rejecting it? I, I, I don't know. That that uh, was that was a real fear for me. Uh -huh. Like what if they said no? Yeah. 
because who are you to tell me like I can't change my, my last name from this name that that isn't mine yeah you know what I mean it's legally it's been like my family's last name but but it's, it's really not theirs either you know it doesn't come from us it doesn't come from the often people you know so it doesn't come from our hemoduck and like I, I I don't know I see I remember talking to a classroom of um they, they were they were high schoolers so like around 10 11. 11th graders, and I did a presentation on the, um, it, it was on basically like historical trauma, mm -hmm. and and I told them about the whole being enslaved and where our last names came from, and and there was like five that were actually listening to me, I guess, the whole time, they were like, is that true, is that real, and I go, yeah, it's real, that's, you're, you're not Spanish, you know what I mean, yeah. and we've been here way before they, they ever got here, so you come from a bloodline and your family would know what that is. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what that is, but your family can. Somebody can, you know, hopefully, yeah. But, but a lot of that's lost too, so. Yeah, so thanks for sharing like a little bit of like who you are and you know, your um, growing up and like your, some of your past, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're a writer and you're a poet and, um, your poetry delves into like a lot of what you mentioned, like historical trauma, addiction and abuse. Um, would you say that writing has been a big part of your healing process? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 um, it opened a whole new dimension to, to self and then. When I actually read, um, like I was telling you earlier, um, when I started doing this, um, I, I got asked, and I, I never read publicly. I, when I was in prison, I wrote like a couple of things that I liked, and um, when I wrote them, other people kind of, when I read it out loud, some, some people could relate to it. And um, you know, I was just really talking about myself and kind of what I was going through. But um, it allowed me to... to to kind of look at it like, okay, you have experience in, in all of this and maybe your poetry could help other people that have gone through this or, you know what I mean, or help help them from getting into it, one or the other, you know, uh, or even those that, because there's a lot of people that, I'm not the only one that's gone through the childhood I've gone through. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in, 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 in the Americas, period, whether it's Canada, Mexico, what have you, you know, and in North America, you know, there's you, you hear it constantly on on all reservations: the gang violence, the alcoholism, the the, the drug abuse, the, the meth ec epidemic, and you know, all that's been going on um, for a while. And it's I, I don't think it's it's really been addressed. Like we need to address it, and, and it's a very, very real problem that continues to plague our people. And 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 like in it, um, children suffer. Um, women suffer, elders suffer, communities suffer. You know, there's, it's like, I, I don't know, at some point I hope that we can take off our blinders and just kind of start addressing these issues and fix the home. Because I, I believe that if we get to a place where, you know, we, we reinstill um, traditional values, philosophies into our people and, and that their homes are safe, so that, you know, kids aren't being abused in any way, whether it's physically, mentally, sexually, however, you know, um, 
and they're and that they're fed, you know, and that they, you know, they're not hungry. I think that our people will, a lot of things will fix itself moving forward. It's not um, because that's where a lot of the problems derive from is coming from those broken homes that have these issues. And then the other part is that, you know, I think it affects us when we see it and we don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I really think it does as a people because we allow it to happen. And, and where once before we were, it was all about us, the people, the tribe, the village. Now it seems to be more about me, just me and what I could get, about, about me and I, you know what I mean? That the I part, and that's something that this Western civilization kind of introduces to as well, so. Yeah, while you were answering that question, I was um, thinking of, uh, so I've been reading the Dene Reader, <laughs> mm. and um, I read Bojan's piece, mm. and it just, like, I felt like I was, like, completely floored or, like, I don't know what it, it was, like, a... I was just like blown away by like how powerful his piece was and like him talking about, you know, kind of what you mentioned, like hunger um, and abuse, like as a, you know, in his childhood. And like, I was just really, I like thought about his piece, like for the rest of the day. And I was just thinking like, how is there a way for, I mean, first of all, I was very, like, I wanted to thank him for sharing his piece and, like, you know, also just being vulnerable, you know. And that's, like, a hard thing, at just being vulnerable as a person. But, like, being vulnerable as a Native man, like, that's, like, one of, like, the hardest things, yeah. I feel like, to to see or witness. To So to see it on paper, I was just, like, I felt very thankful that, like, Bojan was one of these native men that could like show like it's okay to be vulnerable or it's okay to write these things um, that have happened, um, you know, as a a native like cisgendered man. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. um, I I mean, with some of your poetry, um, I kind of felt the same way. Like, like, like I, I was very grateful to read these, like these, these poems and like, stories about what has happened you know to um I mean you're now you're now a grown adult but like um just seeing like how native men can you know be vulnerable and it's it's I feel like it's still a rare thing that happens in like native culture because like most native men are taught like you have to be strong and you have to not show your feelings and I feel like that has been one of the like one of the I don't know the biggest like how do I say it it's like toxic masculinity has been a very like harmful thing to our our culture as native people and what would you say like to those that um might be scared to share their words or their you know whatever their past or whatever they're feeling that might be considered like not manly or (laughs) you know showing that vulnerability like um like how I don't know how how would you like if you were facing a group of native men in like a writing circle like how would you 
um, approach that. Or maybe that's just something that would be like a sacred space for you guys. I don't know. I had this conversation with uh, a few people since its conception, um, the idea anyway, the thought was one of the things that I think that we endured um, in in the preservation of our culture, of our way of life, and um, during the occupation of whoever op- occupied your lands, whether white, Spanish, for us, Spanish. And you got to remember, for us, it was... By the time the U.S. government got to us, we were pretty much already like mm-hmm. colonized because we had it, we've been dealing with this since like the mid 1500s or something like that. You know what I mean for for the autumn, and so um, they didn't get here till like the 1800s. But we were already mm-hmm. we were already like Catholics and you know that whole bit. So, but I think that. In that time when, because um, you, you'll hear stories about um, them going somewhere in secret to do ceremonies, to do things, to, to do the things that we weren't allowed to do in front of the priests because they wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I understand in that time that, that this kind of, you had to be stern about it because, well, people got killed mm-hmm. if or they got really hurt if they if they were found out that this is what they were doing, you know, uh, in private. So it's kind of the secrecy that, that had to be kind of done with it. And I could understand the sternness in the way that it was taught, like, keep it, you know, blah, 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 like, no, get over here and do this kind of thing. Like, and, and, and like, I remember um, with some of the elders, not all of them, some of them are really gentle, but then, but then a lot of them are really stern about like teaching you and the way that was. And I'm like thinking, that had its place in a time that it needed to be that, but it, we're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that needs to be let off. Like you need to take that foot off that gas, that gas pedal, and like apply it to a different one where you can start releasing these things again. Because we used to be fluent in the way that we express ourselves and did things, mm-hmm. but at, back then. Um, and I think for men, it's, it's really hard, especially like um, those that are still trying to figure it out. Because, you know, I remember about three years ago, um, my ex-wife and I were, were, were talking and she had two kids that were living with us. And they went to go visit their dad and um, during the Christmas break. And... He was addicted to heroin and and some and other drugs, but he wasn't really there for them. But his brother, you know, he was employed and he was going to come get them um, and go get them school clothes and stuff they needed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And while they're waiting for for him, he flipped out, has this big fight with the mom, calls the brother, says you don't come, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then the mom kicks him out of the house and. Merry Christmas, you know, it was around that time. Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember talking to my ex-wife and I said, you know, I, I get that. I mean, it's fucked up, but I get it. And, and she was like, what? Like, what do you, so you don't understand. Like, I remember when I was going to school, I was working two jobs. I had both my boys living with me. They're both teenagers at the time. And I remember like not being able to 
to get them something that they needed or they wanted, mainly what they wanted. And that is like the shittiest feeling in the world to not be able to provide for your for your children as a man, mm-hmm. as a, as an awesome man. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember where we came from. Once upon a time, we were we we were providers. We built our own homes. We we hunted and we we took care of our families, our people. We took care of our people. We didn't just care of our families. We took care of our people. We had a role, a significant role in our in, in our people's presence. And so when when we started getting assimilated and the colonization and things started happening. Those roles got taken away. So now, if you're not educated, if you're not, you know, blah blah blah, then, then you you're really not going to find a good job. You're not going to find, and you know, I mean, it 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 sucks. But some of the guys are feel like some of these things are beneath them to what fast food or whatever because they're grown men. You know, they're in their thirties. You know what I mean? Or going in their forties, and they're not educated. And so they get stuck into this, this, and I get it, I understand it. It's no excuse. I mean, it's, you know, I came from that mm-hmm. and I had to figure it out on my own, but um, I had a lot of help. Mm-hmm. And that was the other part was I was willing to ask for that help. Mm-hmm. So coming from that place, though, for the men, where we were just proud, proud men at one point and to be reduced to that uh, on, on, mm-hmm. on this level through whatever it is, religion, academia, you know what I mean, what, in the process it happened. And then, you know, how the reservations are now mm-hmm. with the nepotism and the greed and the witching and all that other stuff that's, that's happening, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's just hard, like, for for Native men, and I'm not making, I'm not trying to build an excuse for them, I just understand that mm-hmm. where they're at. So coming from that, it is hard to talk about these things that because it is embarrassing, mm-hmm. first of all, when you when you talk about real things like I don't want to admit that I wasn't able to I wasn't able to provide for my sons at, at certain points, but that's truth. It's just if you're a student and you're going to school and you're on scholarship, you're fucking broke. You know what I mean? And that's and I had two boys and I remember having to apologize to them for that mm-hmm. with tears in my eyes, like literally apologizing to them. And then and I remember they just both kind of said. I said, but I, I remember telling them, but, but I can't stop now because if I stop, I don't think I'll go back. Meaning I could go, I could go get a job. I could go work construction and make like, you know, $20, $25 an hour. Mm-hmm. And I could be able to give you the things you need, you want. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I stop, I probably won't go back to school and finish getting my degree. And they were like, no, don't, don't stop that. Go get, you know, finish. And they were both really supportive. And these are like 16, 15, 16 year old boys mm-hmm. telling me this. So they were a big part of my my success in doing what I was able to do, and so I, I love them to death, and I tell them that all the time. You know what I mean? And like, but that's the other part of it is that you know the generations before, especially those like in the sixties, the fifties, the seventies, you know, you weren't, you, you couldn't really even say I love you. Mm-hmm. That that wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I I didn't hug anybody in my family until I was like seventeen, eight, seventeen years old. Hmm. And that was like my aunt. I remember that was the first person in my in my family I ever hugged. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's and that's that's not uncommon. It wasn't uncommon back then, especially. Mm-hmm. So, but to be able to write about these things for me, um, I would tell the men that is that we're no longer in those spaces and that we do have to expose whatever it is that that's kind of hindering that in our lives, whatever that might be for us. 
because you can't fix it if you don't expose it. Mm. And that's usually, and that's what truth is. Truth is, it brings out the stuff that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And if you don't fix it, then it's nothing's going to change. But if you if you keep if you muster up the courage to talk about your truth and look at things that that might not be healthy for you or you know what I mean or that's hindering you from progressing in your life you know what I mean and you're willing if you're willing to talk about it and, and get it out and expose it then you could then you can start looking for solutions to that problem rather than rather than hiding it because mm -hmm. when, when you hide it and you most of us can't do this alone I don't know anybody that has everybody that I know has had help moving forward on the, in their lives in, in, on some level mm -hmm. they've all had help I don't think anybody's done it alone. I think, yeah, a lot of my healing process, I definitely needed help from other, whether it's other like older, uh, like native elders, like um, especially Navajo women elders, like really, I feel like they were a big part of my like healing. And um, also like even like as a professional worker, quote unquote, like that, I I had a lot of guidance with that. And I, I feel extremely thankful for that. I mean, I also got like, you know, I had the, the scary, mean Navajo lady boss too, which, you know, I knew I didn't want to be, but I also had the other, you know, I feel like I had both yeah. in my healing process. And, um, yeah. And I just really like how you talk about like, you know, having the courage to expose what, you know, um, whether it's abuse or trauma, um, and like without that exposure, there would be no healing. And I feel like your your indigenous poetry series, um, which is called "Emerging Beyond Colonization." Genocidal colonization. Oh, genocide! What is it? Emerging beyond genocidal colonization. Oh, okay. Um, emerging beyond genocidal colonization. Um, I feel like the the poetry series is really good at, um, you know, sharing those, those parts that might be unhealed or parts that, you know, are still going on in native society that can be, um, ha be destructive or, you know, um, but I think it's a great, stepping stone for like starting those conversations or even just talking about it or just hearing about it. And, um, I, I did do a reading out in cells mm -hmm. a couple yeah. years ago <laughs> for, which is part of your series. And that's how I heard of, uh, that's how I met you. And, um, it's still going on to this day. It seems like it's stronger. Yeah. And, you know, and, um, since the pandemic happened, it moved to zoom. Yeah. And would you say that, moving it to zoom has, has made the, the series stronger or has like had poets, um, come together more native poets that, you know, might not make it like drive out to cells. Yes, yes definitely. Um, the pandemic was, was hard. Um, um but it, it, it did bring a lot of, uh, we could, we found this platform, you know what I mean? Zoom, um, inner, you know, on, the, the e platform that we were using before, but not to this, this extent. And so we we started. Um, um, I worked with Enrique Gay and um, Salt, and uh, her and I. Um, she's been helping me for 
I thought it was a year, and we were talking. We just had a reading last Thursday on the twenty seventh, May twenty seventh, and um, we had um, some really good readers on there. And uh, it at the end of that, like I was like literally glowing with like energy just from the the reads. I didn't read, and um, I went to step away from it. But the majority of them were young. Mm-hmm. And it was just powerful. And um, so we talked about it. And I was telling Enrique after we, we stayed on, this, on on the meeting after. And um, I was telling her, like, yeah, I was talking to a friend about you and I working together. It's been over a year. She says, she kind of looked to the side. She's like, no, it's like two and a half. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I did, I did the math, and I was like, holy, yeah. I've been over like two years, and they go, because we, it was like a year when the pandemic started, about, like, she started yeah. working with me, like, like, February 19, I believe it was, something like that, Yeah. and um, she's, she came on as an MC, then she helped, started helping me organize this, and then we brought in another person, um, Kristen, and I'm sorry, Kristen, I can't pronounce your last name, but, um, um, she works. She works with us, and I love them both. They're they're both good people, and we. Um, so we brought this new one on, and it was a lot of like talking about. It was the same stuff I'm talking about, in, but in their own way. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the whole point for me was that when I initially started this, um, I was running into a lot of like uh, comments from different people, um, just natives. Period various tribes kind of doing uh, the whole like what they owe us for what they did to us mm-hmm. and I'm like um, wait who who did what to you right and um, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting this in my book um, I was talking about my guy prison and went to a halfway house and there was a guy there he was Dene and he was talking about like um, um, they were they were dropping us, so we had to go take a UA. And we had to do a breathalyzer, right? Mm-hmm. And he came back to the halfway house, and he was buzzed. Mm. And he was like, "I don't know why you got to do this. You guys owe us. You, you know, mm. you should just let you know, you should just be able to be here. You owe us for what you did to to our people." And and he turned around to me and said, "Right, brother." And I go, "Wait, who who did what to you?" And he goes, "He would say like, well, you know what they did to our people." And I go, "But but yeah, that was to our people." And he goes, well, no, that's that's us. And I go, so you were there. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, so you were in the long walk. And he goes, he looked at me, he goes, no. And I go, that's not why they did this. That's not that. This is not why they did that. Mm-hmm. It's not so that you could have an excuse to not be accountable for yourself. This is this. They did that so that you could evolve and move forward. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I felt like, um, and I've been, and I've been. And I've been guilty of that in my past, using that card, like, well, you owe us for what you did to us. Mm-hmm. Look what you did to us. And you know what I mean? As a result. But it takes away, like, accountability. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and it gives, like, um, policies, like, justifications of, like, the BS I was doing in my life, of how I was living my life. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, like, um, I was like, how do I get, how do we get out of that victim mentality and start healing what, what our ancestors, because our ancestors were the ones that endured all that. We didn't. We, we, we're suffering from the ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. But we can still heal ourselves and get back to some kind of like strength that, that they had, that they that 
got them through to where, where, where we're at today. You know what I mean? That got them through all that so that we could be here today. So built on that strength, and it wasn't about survival anymore because it used to be this series used to be called survival, yeah. the survival of genocidal colonization. And um, I'm like, but we're not in survival mode anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're beyond that. So, and the genocidal, the the gener So, I'm almost thinking about calling it generational genocide now because, yeah. because for the last few decades we've been almost just doing this to ourselves. Mm -hmm. It hasn't really been outside entities doing this to us. It's more of like us, you know, like all the all the, the drug dealing, the drug abuse, all that, that I learned at 10 years old was from my own people. Mm -hmm. All the, all, like, I, I did, and I did this thing too, like personal trauma versus historical trauma. Like all my personal trauma came from my own people. It didn't come from no, you know, white person, black person, Mexican, whatever. It came from my own people, at the hands of my own people. And so I was like, how is this a justification for those things? Mm -hmm. It's not. I don't, I don't care. Um, a a, a seven-year-old boy that's being abused in his home by his mother could give a F about historical trauma or, what, or how that happened. Mm -hmm. all, that person, all that boy knows is what's happening to him at that, at that age. That's it. He care less about, about anything else. He just knows, like, why am I being abused? Why is this happening to me? Why am I, why am I not eating? Why am I wearing these, like, raggy clothes? You know, that kind of thing. Like, that's, that's all that matters to that child. And so it, it, it kind of became this thing, like, we really need to get away from that. Yeah. We really need to get away from that and start addressing these things on a real scale. Like, and I get, like, all the other things that, the external things away from the, from, from a reservation, like, um, Whatever causes might be happening outside of that, you support that. I get that, but we need to fix the home first. I, go back, I, always, I always go back to that because if we don't address these things, they'll just perpetuate, and this is the same BS that we'll hand down to the next generations coming in. And, and that's not my goal. It's not to hand everything that happened to me. I don't want to hand it down to the next generation. I want it to stop here, leave it with us, like end it here, and like give them something way better than we ever had. Mm -hmm. so not expose them to any of the things we were exposed to in our time. Mm -hmm. that's, I think that's the whole point for me. And so that's, that's the, the, the main idea behind the, the series was that we kind of start help this healing process happen. And then in that, like look for, for other like solutions to, to kind of like, kind of like, in, like, solidify these paths to, to something better for those that are coming in because we'll never see that world you and i will never see what that looks like in a in hundred years mm -hmm. but i bet you it's going to be a lot better than what we know what, what we've known in our lifetime yeah that's interesting that you talk about the story about the the Diné guy and like you know turning to you about you know wanting to ag agree with him um and it also makes me think of like lateral violence yeah, and would you consider lateral violence to be uh, part of colonization? Definitely, I, I think it's definitely a ramification of it, mm -hmm. because in that you got to remember, like we're fighting for scraps at this point, mm -hmm. and as a, as the people, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the, the BIA or anybody else threw at us, because you know when. We weren't allowed to hunt anymore or to live like the way we were doing or even practice the ceremonies we were doing. Um, 
and you see this. I saw this when I was at, at ASU, like uh, in academia, where there was like a handful of scholarships given out, and you had to compete with other natives to get these these scholarships, and it became something. I mean, yeah. like I I had to go see a medicine person when I was at ASU a few times to get mm. things off of me, and it was just out of jealousy. Mm. And it was always out of jealousy, and. Um, and I remember um, a woman who, who who passed on. She used to work there, and she and she was a, a healer, mm -hmm. and she would have to do that for for several people there too as well while she was there for the same for same mm -hmm. reasons. Right, and so then it, it goes like that's at the at the base level is the scholarships, and then there's internships, mm -hmm. and there's probably like three or four of those that are available. Like, and then you see them, you have to compete with other natives and and like really you know yeah. boom 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 and then there's there's some resentment in that that mm. that develops in, in in that culture and then there's a higher position right mm -hmm. and that's maybe just one or two if 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 you're lucky maybe two mm -hmm. and that's that becomes competitive between um native americans as well and then when i was talking to some of the professors and they they were talking about um i asked a couple of them like um why did you get into academia? Mm -hmm. I wanted to help my people. Mm -hmm. I was going to get into law and do these things for my people. And I go, well, what happened? Mm -hmm. I got offered a job. Mm. And, and, then, um, and then in that, like, as a tendered tender, uh, ten, tender, um, um, professor, you have to publish three, three times a year and, and come up with curriculum every year almost. Mm -hmm. And it has to be different. Yeah. So you can you can address like a real issue, but you can never really complete because they're ongoing. Yeah. Especially if it has to do with the res. Yeah. So then you're you're talking about things that don't really matter after a while. I mean, to me, it's it matters, but yeah. not on the scale that these things that that are really happening on the res matter. Yeah. And so like, that's kind of the same thing on the res. Mm -hmm. There's the scarcity of jobs. You know what I mean? And that kind of like causes like that comp you're, you're competing with your own people for these, these scraps that are being thrown at us. Yeah. And so that, that, that does develop in that. Like, so you're like, I have to trip you to get there first kind of thing. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it kind of becomes something like that. And it's, mm. it, it perpetuates itself. And it, it, it now it's so common. It's not even like looked at like it's abnormal for us as a people where we were never like that before. That was, that was enough for everybody. Yeah. It's kind of funny because uh, I'm not a competitive person at all. And uh, I don't know. I guess, I mean, to the to the colonizer's eyes, they probably see it as laziness. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, I just, like, when it comes to, like, competing, I just kind of, I just, I don't know. It makes me tired thinking about it. <laughs> having to compete with other people and maybe that's why I've never been good at getting scholarships and all that stuff or even like internships um but yeah I guess maybe some people might see it as lazy but I'm just like it's the whole concept of like the seat at the table thing like you want your seat at this like grand you know white table to be part of a voice so the white person can hear you but I'm I don't know I always believed in the idea of building your own tables you know building your own whatever your own 
business or your own, you know, like your write your own book, write your own story, tell your own story, do it with what you have around you. I mean, like that's kind of how I just started with like my storytelling was with zines and just making what was around me. Like I didn't have a big art budget. I just kind of used what I had around me yeah. and pictures and photos and stickers that I thought was cool. So like, I, I just think it's a very interesting, um, I hope there's a shift of like, you know, the, the lateral violence and not seeing it so much as we have to compete with one another, but more so like creating communities and, you know, having those community builders. And I feel like I'm very inspired here at the nature or nurture house, you know, with, um, Chawa and Carissa, like they're, they're big, really, they're very strong community builders. And I feel like I, I learn a lot from them, especially Chawa. She's, we can probably see her out now, outside now and she's working on the community garden, um, which, you know, the, that community garden feeds people that, you know, need food through the mutual aid Phoenix. And so like, just things like that, like, I feel like it, it's also like who you surround yourself by too, you know? And I don't feel like I'm in a community at the nurture house where I'm like competing with the others, you know, the other women in this house, like, but more and more so working together, seeing what we can do to like help provide one another, like Maya and make stickers or whatever signs they might need or, and then Chawa, you know, she provides books for like book giveaways that I do and, or Carissa zine giveaways, you know, so stuff like that, like. I just, I think it's all in a matter or two of like who you surround yourself with, you know? Yeah. My last question would be, lastly, who, what would you say to your younger self that at one point felt hopeless? Yeah. Um, so you sent me the questions earlier and I, I was looking at them and I have a really good friend. I, her and I talk, um, she's been kind of my ear for what I'm putting in my book because I'm putting some stuff in there that I think people might have a problem with and um, or they just might not necessarily agree with my view or whatever. But but this is how I, I um, you know, as in my experience, and I'll, and I'll get to the question, but in my experience as, you know, um, criminal, a, a drug dealer, and all that on the rest, to my own people. Um, I, I I remember in, in my book, there's a chapter, it's, it has to do with nepotism. And I'm thinking about, have I ever in participated, was I ever a part of nepotism? Did that ever like touch me? I was thinking like, no. And then I, I, I was telling, I told her like, you know, when I was dealing coke, I would sell to a lot of people. A lot of them were in kind of high spaces, and you know what I mean? And I was a few judges and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I never thought, like, um, I said, yeah, you know what? I was guilty of that once. Um, I, I won't say the name, but there was a guy that, um, he was a judge, and uh, and so I was, I was selling coke. And... Um, and we party, and anyway, I, I so I get arrested on the res, and I stand, I go in front of him, 
And um, the the prosecutor was like something like this guy has a record, blah blah blah. Like um, the police used to detain him until blah blah blah, and set a bomb for blah blah blah. And then and the judge was kind of like, I'm gonna go ahead and release you on your own recognizance today. And um, and that was that's nepotism. It's it's it's, it's still nepotism, right? Yeah. You're you're being favored for who you know and how you know them. Yeah. Right. That's so. I thought about that, and I was thinking like, the stuff is like really ingrained in in on the res, um, and and, and nepotism's everywhere, mm-hmm. but it's really prominent in the res, and you just see it blatantly, see it in front of you. You know what I mean? And like I said, that was when I was when I was really when I was really young. Um, when that happened, and and that person is no longer here, so mm. and 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 so, but when I think about about that, um, you know, you you have all these kind of like um, um, things that just that I these things that I saw um, in that lifestyle mm-hmm. that I was really exposed to, and um, on both sides of the fence. Um, on my side of the fence and on the other side of the fence, which is like the, the legal part of it, and how deep those nails ran in, in, in at least where I'm from. Mm-hmm. But then when I was in Tuba, I was dealing with drugs too, mm-hmm. when I lived there for a year, and I saw how that worked there as well. And it wasn't, it wasn't that much different. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, um, so some of these things that, that what that I'm talking about are just my experiences. I'm not making reference to any books or any, you know, nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just my experience of my truth. And so that gives me this lens of of what like like where 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 it really is. Mm-hmm. Where it is where it really was when I was in it and growing up in it. Um when I was in prison for those five years, so there was a lot of young men that came in that we're looking at real time. I mean, like 20 years, 30 years, life. And these are like 18, 19 year olds coming from Diné, from Apache, from Wallapai, from, you know, from different tribes, from uh, Pima. And um, and I remember like going to their cell and like sitting with them in their cell and like say, hey man, um, because I, I looked at it, it was an opportunity to get some, some real information. I didn't know how I was going to use this moving down the road, but I asked them, like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And they would talk about alcoholism. They would talk about gang-related things. They would talk about these family feuds that have been going on for decades, and I don't even know why they're happening, but they hate this family for some reason. Mm-hmm. And, and it was always things like that. And, and, it, and it got to the point of where somebody killed somebody. Mm-hmm. You know? and. Yeah. Um, and so these things are happening on the res, and these guys are all from the res. And but I talked to them about individuals, like you know, and, they, and I remember this kid. Um, he was Apache, and he was talking about like um, we're not like every we're we're not like every like other res. You know what I mean? We're we're, we're poor. Mm-hmm. We're we're like we don't have no jobs. There's no jobs for us, and like it's not it's not like the Navajo. It's not, it's not like the Nahuatl. They have everything over there, and I'm like, uh, and I'm like, like really this, this, this is what he said, right? So I, I said, um, <laughs> I said, check this out, bro. Like, I, I lived on that res. Mm-hmm. I lived on that res for like a year, and I told him like, it's the same on every res, bro. Yeah. It's the same. 
the same things that you're facing on your res is, yeah. on, is on every reservation in America and in Canada. Mm-hmm. So there's no, but this is his view. Yeah. This is a young 18-year-old mind view, and he was 18 years old. Yeah. Little guy, too, and he, he, he killed somebody mm-hmm. over some something like that. And um, But I remember talking to them, and like, this is a real problem, and these things are still happening on the res. Yeah. So back to your question. Um, so like I, t- I was telling you, like I had a hard time learning English. And I was talking to my friend um, before I came over here. And I said, I think I'm going to talk about this for this question. So when I was about, um, I was going on six years old, somewhere around there. I still, I, I, I couldn't speak English. And my mom was really abusive. I mean, I mean I'm talking like, you know, getting beat two by fours and things like that, like where I knock out and wake up on the bed with welts and bruises I didn't have before, you know what I mean? Things like that. And I remember this one time, um, I, I, I still couldn't speak English. She grabbed me, threw me on the couch, and just started beating the shit out of me. And was telling me in autumn, and so I remember was, you're not allowed to speak that, you're not allowed to speak autumn in my house anymore. And um, kept repeating it, yelling it at me, and and I just remember, and she said some other things, and um, but I, I won't repeat those. Um, I don't think any kids should hear those things from their mom. But so she did this, and I, and I, she was close, close fist punching me on my on my head, on my body, and um, was holding me down with the knee, then with her arm, and and um, and I remember like literally having the autumn beat out of me at that mm. at, at like going on six years old and my world changed like the world just went like it was you know I, I most kids I know that that are that age love to fucking talk mm-hmm. but I couldn't mm. because I didn't know how mm-hmm. and so going into the world with like this kind of like you're just confused as fuck and you don't know like what what can I do I mean I can't I went, so I was in constant fear. Now I'm just living in this, in this world of fear. And so like I had a really hard time learning. Eventually I started learning English, really broken, had a really bad slur. I still kind of have it today. But these things happened. And I remember like losing my autumn language. Hmm. You know, so I've been taking classes to try to reclaim my, my language. And I was talking to a friend. Um, and I told him about this experience. And he, was, he said, you know what? He goes, you know, the fucked up part about that is that she may have been doing that to you out of love. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it that day, and I was like, I just remember having a, a, a way more deeper understanding of the simulation because she mm-hmm. was part of the boarding school process. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. And so it gives this different dimension to that. But what I would tell myself then, which um, I think that Whatever we go through is for a reason, mm-hmm. good or bad. And, and I've gone through enough bad to where I've picked up insight and tools from my plight that I wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. Can't get it just like from, you know, being in comfort zones, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I'll just say that you're, you don't have to endure this. And I did write a letter to myself, to my young self, I remember, and I said something like, uh, Things are bad right now. You're, you're gonna have to endure more bad things in the next few years of your life. Mm-hmm. 
but but you have to get through it and you're going to be okay just you just have to keep going keep going no matter what and don't don't look back just keep moving forward and so it wasn't until i got older and i started doing some work on this and um i had to look back at it and it was still the same the same crowd so i was thinking that um this might have this might might have some impact on why it's even hard for me to learn art from today mm. because there's this fear in it from yeah. from that young child that was me you yeah. know and um but that's all i could i I'll, i remember in the letter that's all i was saying was that you're gonna endure this but you have to get through it and um and i did you know what i mean so like coming from that um so when i got Got out of prison, I went to um, Glendale Community College, and then I ended up at ASU, and then mm -hmm. graduated from there and did my thing. But mm -hmm. and and now I have a career, and I think a lot of people are like, you shouldn't really talk about that, like the, the prison stuff and like and all that. And I go, it's my story. I, I can't. What do you want me to? Do? Mm -hmm. I don't have any other story for yeah. you. It's the only what I have. You There's know. No I mean? golf courses in <laughs> So, so but but coming from from that childhood to be where I'm at, it's, I, I think that there has to be some purpose in that. It's mm -hmm. not, and it just happened um, in the way that it did. And I, I you know, and, and I'm blessed to be where I'm at today. I'm really blessed. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I love my life and, and I'm, and I'm, and uh, like, so on the 16th of May, I picked up 16 years in my recovery so that's 16 years drug alcohol and violence free mm -hmm. so and and for me that's huge you know what i mean because i remember when i was doing all that stuff and you know um even like the prison stuff and you know all that but but to be to have 16 years of, of clean time um we call it in in the program i'm in and um to be off drugs alcohol and to not be violent for that long for me was a miracle in itself and that's but that's um a lot of that went back to a lot of my um traditional philosophies and traditional like values going back to those and really being a part of ceremony really like i'm, I'm seriously a part of like i walk a traditional path i have no religious ties to any part of me i'm not um have nothing to do with any other other deity or a belief system but other than than the art from Himika. And that's mm -hmm. that's how I live today. And so I, I wish that for any person in the, in their tribal ways, their tribal beliefs, whatever tribe they come from, is that you somehow find your way back to those because in those things there's really healing power. There's some real healing power in that. And it's really where you come from. That's 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 a, that's a, there's a true like strength and a true like like connection, not only to that, but it, it connects you to everything else, not only yourself, but to everything else. And, and, and in that, there's power. It's real. That's really beautiful and inspiring. And I mean, it, it feels cheesy to say, like, you know, it's beautiful and inspiring, but like, you know, it is. And it's, it's always like, I don't know, it's, it's in this like spaces where you know you can talk about this stuff especially when you're like part of that healing process or that decolonization process um that if you're with other people 
that are on that same journey. If it feels like, you know, you are a stronger person or there is like hope. <laughs> Cause you know, like, yeah. like for me, you know, I grew up with a brother that was, you know, an alcoholic and a drug addict and bipolar. And for a long time I was like very angry with native men. And like, I just was like, I'm not marrying a native man. I'm not dating native men. Like I was just like done with them by the time I was like 18. And, um, you know, and I was still drinking. Like, I, you know, I started drinking when I was like 16. So like I was, you know, drinking in my 20s and just like, just pretty much like angry, like with native men and just, um, you know, being stuck in my own like sorrow and all that stuff. Yeah. But, like, as I got into my 30s and late 20s, um, I started meeting more, like, Native men that were sober and not, like, drinking. And, and like, they were very, like, okay with being, like, vulnerable. And I thought it was really weird because I wasn't really used to that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, there's my dad. He doesn't drink. But, you know, he still is – it's very hard for him to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So, like – as you know, I had a, a native boss that was sober. Um, I met my partner and he's sober. So like meeting like these native men that are, you know, as I'm getting older and then like one of my best friends, you know, um, Jeff, he's, he's a sober, uh, Dene man. And so like, I, I just was very, it was just very interesting how all these like sober native men started coming into my life in my late 20s and I was just like I don't know what it it, it, but they like it was definitely part of this this thing in my journey where like I was like not so angry at native men anymore I mean I, I still like get frustrated by toxic masculinity that happens in the native culture and all of that but like it's just interesting to have like my own like um my my private and personal life is like filled with like men that are like so native men that are sober and I feel like that's like a big part of my healing process and I don't know it's it's just I don't know when you were telling that story I was just like yeah like it is like um having that that those safe spaces I guess that you create for yourself and like and it really does matter you know yeah Yeah. and just wanted to thank you for this interview (laughs) (laughs) there was something I wanted to to say real quick but um I can't remember slip my mind but yeah no I think the there's two parts to that is that um because in order for me to to talk about these things, I had to get past like you don't talk bad about your elders, mm-hmm. you don't you don't talk about your people like that, you don't talk about your family like that. You know what I mean? Especially in in on the red in Native America, mm-hmm. and um, but when your trauma comes from that, mm-hmm. that who else are you supposed to talk about? You know what I mean? And so there's this kind of like this like loyalty that that kind of abstracts you from that. It, it, it almost, it's hard to decipher that because even that, that, that machismo, the masculinity you're talking about, it's a really small world. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's just a really pathetic small world. And it, 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 it keeps you locked into this kind of like where you, 
have so much opportunity outside of that in your personal life, in your, especially in your personal life, but in other opportunities as well in, in, in the world. But if you can't get past that, it, it, it hinders you from, from doing so much in your life. Mm-hmm. And it's not about like, I need to be soft or I need to be whatever. It's just, no, you just need to be yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and in and, and, and Red's life, you know what I mean? You had to be hard or, you know what I mean? All that. And it was really, I lived by that. Mm-hmm. I lived by that for a long, a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really a, violent, a really violent person. And I, and I was, I was a really bad person, put it like that. And um, when there's no morality involved, None, whether it's religious, cultural, traditional, whatever, mm-hmm. um, then 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 there's you know you you don't have any there's no there's no pity in doing anything you know what I mean there's just and it's and it's it's not a good place to be and there's so many of our young men that are that are like that today because I I, I was that so I recognize it when I see it and it's like you know and I try to help these men but but yeah so. But thank you for for bringing me on. I think that um, I'm just I'm just I'm just grateful for the opportunity. So, yeah. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and we hope you know that in this space because we just opened the nurture house back in February. And um, yeah, we hope one day we can host the emerging beyond genocidal colonization awesome. here and. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, of course. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you to Ruben for the interview. And speaking of the collaboration between Abalone Mountain Press and the Emerging Beyond Genocidal Colonization reading series. We will be doing a collaboration reading series for Palabras Bilingual Bookstore's sixth anniversary event, which will be on Saturday, August 14th at 906 West Roosevelt Street in Phoenix, Arizona. Cross streets are 7th Avenue and Roosevelt Street. And for this month's writing prompt, um, it is from Ruben. And his writing prompt he sent to us is, how will you live your life so it benefits you, your people, and all the original people of these lands before America, Mexico, or Canada? How will you meet your ancestors with honor or disgrace? Will you live in truth and fix the parts of you that need fixing and then help fix the issues of your people? Will you be able to see beyond yourself and seek the help you need to do something you have never done before? What will you hand the generations to come? Who do you learn the good things you know from? And who do you learn the bad things you know from? And what are you teaching other people? Good habits or bad habits? Submit your writing prompt to books at abalonemountainpress.com for a chance to win the July giveaway bundle, and we will have it posted on our website, along with the July writing prompt, the episode to this podcast, which you're already listening to, (laughs) and you'll also see the giveaway items we have this month. 
and we hope you have a good rest of your July. Stay cool, stay hydrated, keep healing. Bye!